Welcome in to a Wednesday night edition of the Locked On Knicks podcast. I am Gavin Shaw, back from a kind of vacation in South Carolina. We're here to break down the Knicks losing a very winnable game in Denver. And I'm Alex Wolf. And after we get done with that pretty good loss, uh, we're going to get into Ennis Cantor, who after the game mentioned that he met with Scott Perry on Monday and didn't ask for a trade, unfortunately. And then we're going to finish up on a more positive note, talking through the Luke Cornett experience. It has been a hell of a ride through three games. That and more next on the Locked On Knicks podcast. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Knox, foul from behind. Count and one. As Fisdale pumps his fist. What he does is contagious. Like. To Trier. Trier drives down. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Uh, we are on Twitter at Locked On Knicks, and we are in your podcast feeds. Ideally, every day. I don't know if that's going to happen every week, but we are going to do our best. And the miraculous thing is, we are actually both doing the podcast at the same time for the first time since the first episode we ever did together. So we're excited to have it be a little bit more consistent for you guys and for both of us to actually be here and interacting. It, it's a magical thing, Alex. Yeah, how long has it been? About a month? It's literally been, <laughs> I, I, I looked, because I, I had I saw the last time I called you uh, over Google, and it was uh, 25 days ago, so yeah, just about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's since, the, the 25 days of uh, locked on Nixmas, I guess, and we're finally at the end, so now you get the present, hopefully, of both <laughs> of us. <laughs> assuming, assuming you perceive it that way. And, and first time we talked, you weren't married, now that we've talked, you have. First, you are, excuse me, uh, last time we talked, I hadn't met Jerry Ferrara and he wasn't following the podcast, uh, now presumably is. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for listening. Great meeting you at the airport. Uh, yeah, so things things are just drastically different at this point on Locked on Knicks, but we are incredibly excited to be back and we are incredibly excited to be doing it together. All right, so the Knicks in Denver losing what was... You called it a good loss. I tend to agree with you, though I would argue that there were just so many different avenues where even a slightly better version of the Knicks team could have pulled away and won it, taking on the best team in the West. The Knicks fell 115 to 108. Yeah, I think the reality at this point, though, is that this was kind of the best outcome because at this point, like, Anyone who still thinks the Knicks have a shot at the playoffs <laughs> and his cancer uh, are delusional. Sure. And, and anyone who's really rooting for wins at this point, like we've we've finally already now, I think, reached the point of the season where wins are officially counterproductive. So like good losses like this rather than like so the Jazz the other day was a bad loss. That was a very bad loss. But it, that's because the Knicks came out and they just straight up did not like they wanted to play basketball. Uh, but this loss was pretty good. I mean, they stayed in it. The, the Knicks got up by as much as 10 at one point, and then they uh, very kindly pissed away that lead and, uh, you know, got us back to the point where we're tanking again. So <laughs> it's good. I I look at this sort of game 
basically the best possible outcome because this is not a team that should be trying to win games when you haven't even crossed the 10 win mark into 2019. Yeah, I go, I, I really, I, I'm generally, I'm with you. And I, I think I took a lot of shit doing the Nets podcast because that was always my focus, especially, I mean, this season because they had their own first round pick for the first time in five years. I was always like, you you want you want the good loss. You, you want to be in the game. You want to lose it in some heartbreaking way. You want to play well. You want to see development from your young guys. And at the end of it all, you want the final score to be slightly in favor of the other team. But I, I, I think I, I've started to maybe assign a little bit more value to continued cultural de- cultural development, uh, continued, uh, uh, I guess, positive energy, not to sound too much like our ousted uh, Zen master, uh, Philly J. But uh, I don't know. I think I think there is some value in, in, in just a team that struggled so much and had that horrific game against Utah going on the road and theoretically having beaten the best team in the Western Conference that's maybe hard to measure just in terms of confidence in these guys across the roster and them continuing to trust in Fisdale. And I guess the other thing that slightly shifted my perception on this over time is just the idea that the lottery odds have shifted to the point where you're not in a dramatically um, more advantageous position by having the most losses versus the third most losses. Obviously, it's definitely not the worst thing in the world for the Knicks to um, lose these games. But I guess, I don't know. I guess that's, I'm I'm toying with uh, a different perspective on it. Well, so as far as the lottery odds go, not to get too much into that, because we will have plenty of draft talk, I'm sure. (laughs) Literally the rest of the year. That's it. (laughs) But um, I, I mean, the, by having the worst record, you do limit how far you can fall back. Uh, same thing with having, you know, the second versus the third and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, you're correct in saying that the first three teams do all have the same odds of getting the number one pick. So, you know, as far as like the Zion um, lottery goes, that, that's, there's not too much to be gained there. But, you know, you, I think the Knicks definitely want to stay within those top three. But not too much on the whole tanking versus not tanking thing. I thought Moutier played pretty good in that game. And he was certainly like the guy that you were watching in that game because he's, he was coming back to the team that traded him to the Knicks for, you know, more or less nothing last year. Uh, he had 15 points, nine assists, his shooting numbers. I think he shot like 38%, which isn't great, but it, it kind of fell off towards the end. Uh, but oh no, he I thought he played a pretty good game. He definitely looked like he wanted to get the win. And maybe maybe Fizdale rode him a little too hard there in the third quarter. I think he played almost the whole third and, and that might have had something to do with him kind of falling off down the stretch, but that might just be me. No, that's interesting because I, I actually I looked at it the other way. Like I was I was kind of disappointed with how he played. Looking back at it, I'm I'm just I'm just going over the box score. He had nine assists, which is obviously excellent in thirty two minutes or any amount of time. And I didn't even necessarily notice that when he was on the court. But this was a really good game for the Knicks as a whole in terms of attacking the basket, um, creative interior passing, um, getting to the lane, um, kicking it out, swinging to the corner, creating side-to-side ball movement, and, and knocking down some big threes. Like I, I thought offensively, on the whole, it was it was genuinely an excellent effort. And clearly, Moutier, as you can see by those nine assists, had some really good moments. But I was I was frustrated down the stretch because I thought he was forcing things a little bit. And you can tell. I mean, there was that obvious motivation to like, oh, I I got to show up. Like, and I, I want to show these guys what they lost by giving me up for again nothing. And and to a degree, he was able to do that. But just the missed shots, the turnovers down the stretch. Um, one one play that was really annoying for me, and it, it was kind of a tough shot, but 
when they got the steal um, after Cornette was fouled down eight and made the three free throws to make it 108 to, I believe it was 112, or it was 113, if I remember correctly. And then they get the steal at half court, and Moutier has a chance to hit a three to bring him within two. And what he's been so good at over this stretch is shooting at the peak of his jump. And obviously that was the big hitch in his jumper previously where he would shoot on the way down. And I think he just got kind of nervous and maybe a little bit overwhelmed by the moment because he did shoot on the way down, left it short. Uh, then it's got the offensive rebound, but that was essentially the game. It would have been a long shot anyways, but it's just the type of momentum changing play that I, I've been dying for all year watching this Knicks team. And it just, it just wasn't there for Moody. So that was, that was a little frustrating for me, but I, I could see where you, where you thought he, he had a good game and there were certainly good moments for him. Yeah. Well, I think similar to, to how it's been going with Knox and shout out to my, uh, to last week's guest who helped, uh, fill it a little bit while you were out, uh, Ashwin Schwinnipoo. Uh, he, he was talking to me today about how Knox has been playing too long of stretches, uh, when Fisdale plays him, like Knox will play like the whole first quarter and like the whole third quarter, stuff like that. And then it leaves him kind of gassed at the end of the second quarter and at the end of the fourth quarter. I think the same thing sort of happened with Moody yesterday because it seemed like Fizz was trying to give him that time out there to to sort of, I, I don't know, like get his revenge, I guess. Like he was yeah, just playing into it, you know, because he could tell it meant something to Moody, um, which might hark all the way back to like when they went to Memphis and got the win and Moutier was such a big part of that. Maybe Fisdale was sort of paying him back in that regard, but at any rate, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wasn't played. He definitely didn't, he didn't put it away down the stretch or anything, but he's not the guy that should be taking your final shots anyway. So I'm more encouraged by how he played for most of the rest of the game rather than how he played right at the very end of it. Yeah, that's definitely fair. I, I guess I would argue he should be a little bit more, conscientious of, of that fact and like not try and force things but again like this was kind of his stage and it was his right to do that and maybe if he had played a little bit less earlier he, he would have had a little bit more at the very end and he did make some tough shots in the fourth quarter so I'll, I'll give him some credit uh Kevin Knox is, is kind of the next guy I want to hit on just another spectacular first quarter for him had 13 points uh, the Knicks tweeted out a stat today that since December 4th He's sixth in the NBA with um, with just under eight points per game in the first quarter over essentially the last month of basketball. And the five guys ahead of him are basically all Hall of Famers. So that's a great company for him to be in. And I just continue to just, just adore what I've seen from him in transition. He hit this running one-handed floater on the left side of the hoop, jumping off his left foot, shooting with his right hand, and he just got this perfect high arc on it kissed it off the glass and that's just such an advanced superstar type shot it's the type of shot that you don't usually see six nine guys of any experience level have in their repertoire and he, he just pulled it out like it was nothing and then the other one was when Frank got a steal I think he picked Jamal Murray's pocket which was actually just a great play by Frank applying some full court pressure passed it off to Knox and, and for so many guys in the current NBA the instinct would be oh I'm wide open Top of the key, straight on three. I'm going to pull up. I'm going to drain this. But instead, Knox goes straight to the basket. Acrobatic layup over, I think, um, Mason Plumley, And it was just just two awesome plays where he's aggressive. He uses his length. And he shows off a spectacular touch around the rim. And it's those. It's the combination of those characteristics that make me so bull, bullish on Knox going forward. And, and that, I think, allow him to play so well when he, when he has his legs under him at the start of games. Yeah, and and to go back to your point about the floater, it, it 
it's good that he's sort of developed that. And I think it's become a really, really valuable weapon for him at this stage because Knox is still clearly growing into his body uh, as it pertains to being an NBA player. So it's a good weapon for him to have as far as being able to, to pull out that floater when, you know, maybe later on in his career, hopefully later on in his career, he'll be running into contact and finishing through contact at the rim. Now he can't really handle that. So he takes that, that little pull up floater, you know, eight or nine feet away. And, and that's just really been falling for him. It's been like probably other than his threes, which have been really falling in a high clip. It's probably been his most money shot that he's been taking during this hot streak. And I, I think it's cool that he's developing it now as opposed to later on in his career, because I think that it'll make it a, you know, a lot easier to keep that in his game once he does get to the point when he can you know, actually absorb this contact and all that. So it's been a really good development. I, I just think, and again, like we could probably do entire uh, podcasts on this, but I just think he's in so many ways, he's ahead of where I thought he would be at this point. And it was, and I guess, I mean, there was a reason the Knicks picked December 4th, just over the last month, he's just been a completely different player and he's been so much more consistent in so many different facets of his game. I, I think he's due for regression in, in quite a few of them, but the fact that he's flashed the ceiling as, as a teenager already is just, it's just incredibly encouraging. Yeah, I've uh, I've taken to a joke on the, the the posting and toasting Twitter handle of you have to bring it up constantly that he's only nineteen because he's yeah. only nineteen, and it's very impressive that he's only nineteen and he's doing all this stuff and and looking as good as he does. And, he, and he's only nineteen, <laughs> but and he's only nineteen. Um, but now my I had one, you know. Again, I said, like I said, I was pretty happy with this game. The one thing, though, that stuck out to me that I was not a huge fan of, and it might have been part of the whole Moutier revenge thing. It was just kind of a casualty of that. But Frank actually played a really good game uh, last night and didn't really get rewarded for it with playing time, which was kind of strange. Um, it's not like Fizz benched him, but he only got 18 minutes, and he kind of came out and looked the part of what Fisdale wants him to be. He was aggressive. He was shooting. He was also like doing really well, like handing out assists. Um, he had that sweet steal that you already mentioned on Jamal Murray. I mean, I thought Frank played a really, really good 18 minutes and you would have hoped that he would have gotten even more than that. But I guess, I don't know, not a, not the night for it, I guess, but hopefully it's, uh, more the direction that Frank's leaning at this point, you know, in his development, because it would be nice to start seeing Frank get consistent minutes. It's, it's been kind of frustrating to see it fluctuate so much for him, for a guy that pretty clearly most, well, I want to say most, a, a large portion of the fan base either wants to be, you know, really successful or just for whatever reason wants him to fall on his face and fail. But I fall under the category of one. So I would have to see him uh, getting more action right now. Yeah, no, he, he was essentially flawless for this time. And you just said a 4-6 from the field, 2-3 from 3, 10.5 assists in 18 minutes. And I thought for both him and Trier, I, I mentioned this earlier with, with Moody as well, just the, the, the interior passing was really on point for Frankie. It was, it was sometimes more picking guys out um, on the perimeter. But for both those guys, just attacking and then the willingness to to make the extra pass. And, and again, and, and it's games like this that make you want to see Frank with the ball in his hands more, which obviously has been the trend 
over the last month or so. But again, you want to kind of just keep seeing him get more minutes as the primary ball handler on the floor and, and see what he can be. And I, I guess that's, I mean, and again, not to um, like knock this over the head because I think every Knicks podcast, every Knicks beat writer, we spend forever and ever and ever like focusing on Frank, fixating on Frank, talking about every single aspect of his game. But I, I guess my, my overriding point with it, and it's probably one I'll, I'll continue to make until it happens, is that we're not gonna, you're not going to know with him until you give him 24 minutes a game as the primary ball handler day in and day out. Because right now the shooting comes and goes, the assists comes and goes. There's no consistency because there's no consistency in his role, and he's not good enough to just dominate on a whim coming off the bench, but you don't really know how good he can be or like what his capability is currently and until he gets that kind of consistency in terms of minutes and in terms of the spot he's playing on the floor. So I'm, 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 I continue to be frustrated on Frank's behalf, and I hope at some point this year they realize that that should be priority to a degree. Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. All right, uh, I think we, we can just about uh, wrap up our, our recap of the Nuggets game. I want to get into talking about Canner. The, the last thing I'll mention, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on it, Alex, even though it, it's not exceptionally different than all season. I, I was just, I was so frustrated by the Knicks' defense, both early and late in, in this game. They were just lazy getting back in transition, and there were, uh, I, I mean, and we see you see this every single game from them, but there were, there were just a million lapses in terms of their rotation, and any time the Nuggets ran a pick and roll, it's like guys had, had never seen it before, and credit Mike Malone, like he put a couple of different um, quirks in there, like we'd have two guys set a screen for one player and, and an off-ball movement simultaneously, but this is still day-to-day NBA stuff. And I get that the Knicks are young. I get that they consistently employ two awful defenders in, in Cantor and Hardaway. But so much of their mistakes are just obvious and, and inexcusable. And when they go up against a good team, particularly one that um, employs a passer of Nikola Jokic's caliber, like he just picked them apart in the first 20 minutes of this game. He had nine assists, I think, in the first 17 minutes. And so many of them were easy. They were just these simple lookaways. And he could read the Knicks' rotation like it was a book intended for a five-year-old. It, it was just, it was, it's probably the easiest he's ever had it in a game, and it, I just thought it was kind of pathetic, even even by Knicks standards. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like it's sort of beating a dead horse at this point to right. harp on their defense because the Knicks defense is just so consistently awful. But you're correct. But I mean, also, uh, also Jokic is kind of like very prescient on offense. Like you're not going to find someone at the center position that has more of a feel for finding his teammates where they need to be found than Jokic. So there's that to a degree. And I mean, it was just kind of, it's just kind of like the perfect storm when you have a team that's as awful as the Knicks are attack, you know, defending the point of attack, um, both from the guard positions and from some of the interior guys, like even Cornette, who we'll talk about in a minute, he, he plays slightly better defense, you know, than, than the worst guy played defense on the Knicks. But, I mean, he's still pretty slow-footed, and he's definitely not, like, a long-term NBA starter or anything. But, I mean, yeah, Cantor, Cantor freaking sucks on defense. Hardaway, it comes and it goes, but usually it goes. It's, you know, I, I'm not even really – it's tough for me to get mad about that at this point. After watching it for the whole season, it sort of just feels like it's part of the package at this point, you know? Yeah. No, that's fair. I guess, I mean, again, like Jokic is the kind of guy that makes it stand out, but I guess my counter to that would be it's he probably hasn't had it easier all season than against the Knicks. And that again, that's not breaking news, but it was just, I don't know, I got, I got a little bit annoyed. 
Anyways, we will wrap up our first segment on that. When we come back, let's get into it, talking about Ennis Canner's comments post-game um, on potentially getting dealt and his thoughts on that. That next, I'm Locked on Nick. So we're back, and we're talking about Ennis Cantor now. Uh, I feel like I've had to talk about Cantor too much lately, but you know, last week I kind of went on a little tirade. I don't know if you heard that one, Gavin, but... He's, uh, he's been kind of getting under my skin lately, mostly for his off-the-court stuff, the on-the-court stuff I sort of knew about already. But uh, so Cantor last night told some reporters uh, that he met with Scott Perry on Monday. And here I'll just give the quote that he gave so that everybody has some context here. So this was from Steve Popper of Newsday. Cantor said, I did not ask for a trade, no. Uh, I did not say Scott try and trade me. No, I did not say that because I like it here a lot, and I probably won't say to Scott's face, Scott, I want to get traded because I like it here a lot. But again, in the end, we all are competitors, basketball players. In the end, I like it here so much, but again, I want to win. I want this team to get to the playoffs one day. This is my blood man. I'm sorry. If anyone asks anything else, I'm not going to do it. I'm going out there to get a win every time. So cancer in so many words, more words than he needed to say. It basically was like, I don't want to be traded per se, but I want to win. And I guess he feels that by bench, the Knicks are hurting their chances to win despite tons and tons and tons of numbers to the contrary. Uh, so it's sort of sounding like Cantor is sort of trying to pridefully ask for a trade, you know, like not, straight up make a trade request, but kind of wants to be somewhere winning. Or if he's not asking for a trade, he's maybe even angling for a buyout. But I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's almost like the little kid who knows exactly what they want, but is, is afraid to say it directly because there are, there are repercussions when you, when you state exactly what you want. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I find it hard to empathize with him because I think we've talked about it on, on maybe independently since, since we haven't had too many together but I think I think we both mentioned it on this podcast at times that the idea that Cantor would play more minutes on another team or have a bigger role on another team I think is only true in his head because the Knicks are one of the few teams that are bad enough that what he gives up defensively is is worth what he gives you offensively and the scale actually tips in the favor of playing him and giving him a significant role. While I'll, I'll never get out of my head, and this was, I mean, the big thing when the Knicks traded for him um, in his last year in Oklahoma City. I can't remember if it was a TNT or ABC broadcast, but the, the broadcast camera is catching Billy Donovan mouth like about Cantor. Oh, you can't play him in the playoffs. Like literally during a game on the court, just out of pure frustration. And that that's always, that that's the thing with Cantor. Uh, he's, he's only, what he's doing only makes sense in the context of a team that is very, very bad and is in desperate need of a guy that can just create his own offense and can score some points at a fairly efficient clip. Because if not, you're, you're just not going to play him. And I don't think he's accepted that reality. And I think it's stunning to me that the that he is of the... I mean, I, I get why he thinks it, but as, as you said, it just the notion that him playing more is actually good for the Knicks has proven to be ridiculous time and time again. And, and this is a whole lot of verbal vomit to say that um, I think the Knicks should trade him. And I think if he actually does desire that in any way and wouldn't 
flip out about it, and there's a team that's willing to do it and maybe throw the Knicks a second-round pick, which is probably too optimistic, um, they should do it as quickly as they possibly can. Yeah, uh, I'm certainly right there with you. I mean, the, the most frustrating thing, and again, like, not to beat a dead horse, because I think I went on the same rant last week, but Cancer asked, or didn't ask, but he opted in to coming here. Like, he knew exactly what he was getting into. The Knicks have been very, very clear all the way back from, like, the draft process last year. That, like, we're tearing this down. We're starting fresh. We're bringing in young players. We want to play young players. We want to be a developmental team for a little bit because the Knicks, it's not something they've ever really done. And, you know, they wanted to develop these kids that they've brought on. They want to develop Knox. They want to develop, hopefully, Nilakina. That fluctuates a little bit yeah but they want to you know they want to even develop Cornette and you know Moutier and Vonley and all these other guys that are you know 23 years of age and under and you know I just don't I don't really get where Canner's coming from like in the same things you said I can't empathize with him like one little bit because I just it all seems like it was it this is just him looking for something that's not there. Like he thinks that if he were playing 40 minutes a night, the Knicks would be winning tons of games and a, that would not happen. And B that's maybe not even the goal. Like the goal this year is not like win the most games possible. The goal this year is develop young players and that's what they're doing. And Cantor takes exception to that. So he can kick rocks. That's what I say to Cantor. <laughs> I I don't disagree with any of that. Um, and I, I guess, and this is this is something we don't we don't have to solve in this podcast. We can talk about it going forward. the The question is, I mean, what team wants him? And presume, I mean, there's no reason for a non contender to acquire him. So, is there a contender that actually thinks his abilities are conducive to winning? Like, I don't know, maybe like a team like the Spurs that's win weirdly trying to win, and a coach like Greg Popovich who values interior play, um, I would say, at a disproportionate rate to um, how conducive it is to NBA success at this point in the league, or at least the style that Cantor plays. But I, I don't know. That is going to be a real big issue at this point with trying to find someone to take on Cantor is that he makes $18 million and he's an expiring contract, and the Knicks want to play in free agency this year. So they're going to have a really hard time finding a team that A, wants, wants Tim, period, and then B, has enough expired contracts to make it worth their while to bring him in. So, I don't know. I, I get the feeling that maybe we're pushing towards a buyout at this point. Right. And hopefully it happens before, like, the star break when those sort of things usually happen. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, that would, that would be ideal. All right, let's take one more break. Come back. End with a smile. It's Luke Cornette time. I'm locked on Knicks. Welcome back. Third and final segment, Gavin Shaw, Alex Wolf. So happy to be back together. Uh, the Knicks lost to the Nuggets. Ennis Cantor maybe wants a trade. He was talking about blood. Uh, couldn't quite parse that out, but we, I think we, we gave you a general idea uh, of what that was all about. And now let's talk about something pretty good. Uh, Luke Cornett has been solid. Since he got into rotation, last three games are, last three games were the first three on the season where he played over 25 minutes, and he has scored 23 points, 14 points, 19 points, has shot a combined, and I promise you I'm doing this math on the fly, 15 for 24 from three-point range, which equates to about 60%, a little bit over 60% from three-point range over an extraordinarily 
small sample size. And Alex, I think we're, we're both of the opinion, obviously, that level of shooting isn't sustainable. So I guess the question I'd throw at you is if he's a 38% three-point shooter long-term instead of a 60% three-point shooter, are the rest of his limitations such that you don't see him as a rotation player, whether just for this um, tank-oriented season or, or even even going forward, or, or what elements would he have to add to his game to offset that? I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I guess what do you what do you see going forward for Luke Cornett? I I think I think he's going to regress certainly. Can I can I stat vomit real quick? Can oh, I'd love I'd love it if you did. Here? Yeah, second time we've used vomit okay, in this so podcast, that's, so that's great. All right, good. All right, let me just stick my finger down the throat and stat vomit <laughs> here. So we got uh he so for these three games he's averaged 18 points per game five rebounds per game 3.7 assists per game which is impressive and he's shown more vision than i remember him having things so maybe that's something he's been working on a little bit uh only one turnover per game 51 63 100 slash line so that's like unreal uh in about 30 minutes a game from uh from Jeff Ballone, Nick's film school, friend of the pod, friend of everybody on Nick's Twitter, uh, he tweeted out today that the starting lineup of uh, Moutier, Tim Hardaway Jr., Kevin Knox, and Noah Vonley with Cornette versus with Cantor. With Cornette, they have a uh, net rating of plus 22.9, and with Cantor, they have a net rating of minus 18.2. That's pretty damning. That's, yeah. That was a good stat. Um, if you look at the best three-man lineups in the three games that Cornette's been playing, I think I put on a minimum of 20 minutes. Uh, he appears in eight of the top 10 best three-man lineups that the Knicks have put out in the last three games, which is super impressive. Interestingly, or maybe not, depending on how you feel about this, and this is a little off topic, but Noah Vonley, Frank Nilakina, and Damian Dotson have played 20 minutes together during that time. And they are the best by far of any three man lineup on the Knicks during that time with a plus 38.1 net rating, which is absurd. So I guess defense does matter as it turns out. Um, but then Cornette, he's scoring 80% of his points right now on three pointers. And so again, that comes back to sustainability. I don't know if that's going to keep up because he's shooting 63% from three, but I mean, even if he regresses back down to 38 to 40%, which is still like an extremely high clip for a big, he'll still be valuable and he'll still space the floor. He just won't be dynamite as he's been these last few games. Yeah. And then lastly, he's uh, he's at a 20.1% usage percentage over the last three games. So that's about 2 to 3% less than what Cantor usually averages as well. And it kind of shows that... Uh, Cornette, when he's out there, isn't so much looking for those post-op, uh, post-op, post-up opportunities sure. that Cantor's looking for, where Cantor kind of takes the ball on the block there, you know, dribbles the ball out and, and you know, goes for a move on on the defender or whatever. It, it, Cornette is more about the flow of the offense, and I think that's really been the biggest thing that I've noticed restarts when he's been playing so well, is that he he plays a role within the offense rather than trying to be the offense. It's like Cantor does when he's out there. And I think that's been really valuable for spacing and, and just for the general flow of things. Yeah, I think I think you, uh, first of all, great job on the research there that the stat of him against Cantor, just incredible. And something I would say eye test wise, I, I think I knew intuitively, but not quite to that degree. 
and, and I think I think you hit on what's probably his greatest utility. The idea of him just as I mean, remove Luke Cornett, the human being. Just just look at the raw statistical output and how that impacts everyone else on the court. Just how conducive his presence is to the development of all these other young guys. Because when Cantor's out there, it's throw it into the post, watch him work. Maybe he kicks it out. At that point, the shot clock's declining. You have, a, you have another big inside the lane clogging things up. And you just don't have a lot of room to maneuver on a team that's already struggling in a whole bunch of different ways. And with guards that you're, you're hopeful about but aren't dynamic or at least consistently dynamic NBA players by any means at this point in their career. With Cornette out there, you're working with a consistently open lane with a guy who doesn't dominate the ball and a, another option to kick it out to on the perimeter. And I just think it makes life immensely easier for Frank Nilakina, for Emmanuel Moutier, even for someone like Kevin Knox when he chooses to attack the basket. And I think it will make them immeasurably better and allow them to test their skill set out in what will likely be the Knicks' offense going forward because he kind of provides like a, a substitute um, poorest possible man's KP impersonation. So I, I think in just a myriad of ways, he's really, really good for everyone else on this team. And as you said, and as I said, the 60% is not sustainable, but even if he's two-thirds that good of a shooter going forward, then he could be a really key part of this iteration of the Knicks and maybe a long-term bench guy. And and I'm sorry, I'm going on for a long time here, but I just wanted to slip this in. The one thing I'm really looking forward to him developing after this season, if you, again, want to see him as an eighth or ninth man off the bench in the future, is the ability to have a little bit of a dribble drive game. And particularly in that Nuggets game, I noticed there was one play where he, he had a three and Jokic was like kind of diving to contest and just had a wide open lane to the basket, two dribbles and he has a dunk. No one really there to stop him and instead takes the contested three, misses it. So if he could shift that a little bit in the right direction, I, I could see him being a long-term player on this Knicks team. Yeah, I don't know how much I'll ever be able to develop that, to be totally honest, because I just don't think he has the first step or the quickness to really add that to his game. But I would definitely like to see him try it. You know what I mean? Like if he gets like if he gets like a bunny, like what you're just talking about, where someone's literally like you know diving towards him and and he can very easily sidestep. I hope he can at least learn that. Unfortunately, like I just don't think he's he's not a high level NBA athlete by any stretch. So you know doing stuff like that is is definitely going to be difficult. Um, but we'll we'll see. We'll see what he can add. You know what I mean? I I think honestly, even if he just stayed the player he is now he could, you know, realistically be a decent backup to Porzingis. Uh, you know, not like the primary backup. Like, I'm hoping long-term maybe that's Vonley. Or Vonley can play with KP, and then they can kind of slide back and forth from playing, you know, five minutes when one's off the floor. But, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of like what I've seen out of Cornette the last couple games. I just, I hope, I hope he doesn't crash down to earth. You know, that that's my biggest hope. I hope that when he levels out, he levels, and he doesn't just nosedive. So that, that's kind of my hope right now. Yeah, we just we just don't have a large enough sample size to know whether or not that's going to happen. But it's certainly something to watch going forward. And again, I, I just think what he does for everyone else on the court, and I think you even, you've seen it um, at points these last couple of games with Frank, and I'd be interested to see the two of them play more minutes together and see what having an open lane does for someone like him who doesn't necessarily have the most explosive first step but is somewhat effective getting to the rim. Um, that, that's something that interests me. And then someone like Moutier, who's been really, really good off the dribble at points this season, um, maybe he can continue to take his game to another level. But uh, for, I, definitely, yeah, I definitely agree with Frank. Just just quick point. 
Sure. I definitely agree on the Frank thing that you're saying because a lot of Frank's best minutes last year came with Porzingis on the court and running that like pick and pop action with Porzingis or just whatever with Porzingis. And again, like Cornette is like a knockoff Porzingis. You know, he's like the the dollar store brand, and, and you know, so he's he does enough of those things that Porzingis does that I think you can realistically, you know, it, it provides like a little a little sneak peek, you know, of, of what Porzingis will be in this team when he comes back. And I think it would be good to get Frank minutes with Cornette to sort of mimic how things might be when Porzingis comes back. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely the perfect way to phrase it. All right. With that, we will wrap up this edition of locked on Knicks. We haven't necessarily mapped it out yet, but we will be back a couple more times this week. Obviously the Knicks have a semi big game as big as any Knicks game can be this season against the Lakers on Friday, LeBron, We'll maybe play, maybe he won't, uh, but that will be interesting. Regardless, uh, for Alex, I'm Gavin. We really appreciate you guys tuning in, and we will be back soon.